My name is Kenneth Nars and I'm the creative director of World of Mouth, a platform that connects over 500 restaurant experts who share their favorite places, from the best place to grab a slice of pizza or hamburger, to the latest must-visit new fine dining restaurant opening. Today we're meeting Chef Dave Pint in Singapore. Pint is the chef patron of the modern barbecue restaurant Burnt Ends in Singapore's historic Chinatown. He was born in Perth, Western Australia, and studied cooking before traveling overseas to cook with some of the world's best chefs. His career includes time with chefs like René Redzepi at Noma, Copenhagen, Victor Arginsonitz at Asadar Echebarri, Spain, and Nuno Mendes, London. Since Burnt Ends opened in 2013, the restaurant has established itself as one of Singapore's most iconic restaurants in the historic Chinatown neighborhood. For those of you who don't know him yet, we asked Dave Pint to tell us a bit about himself and his journey that made him one of the leading names in open fire cooking. At the end of our talk, he will reveal his favorite restaurant recommendations in Singapore, from chili crab to fish head curry, and out in the world. You'll also find these places in our podcast notes. Please tell me, who is Dave Pint? So I'm Dave Pint from uh, Burn Ends in Singapore. Uh, we run a barbecue restaurant for about nine and a half years in Singapore and did a pop-up just before that in uh, London. And uh, tell me, your background, you come from Australia? Yep, from Perth, grew up in Perth, Western Australia, did my apprenticeship in Perth, went over to the East Coast and worked with Tetsuya for about just over a year and a half. In Sydney? In Sydney, yep. Uh, And then came back to Perth for a bit and worked at a little restaurant called Restaurant Amuse before heading overseas to stage at uh, Noma, Astor Echabari and St. John in London before starting the pop-up in East London in the summer of 2012. And then for how long did that go on in London? So the pop-up uh, was about five months and it, we got to October 2012 and started getting cold, as you can imagine. And we basically said, we don't want to cook outdoors in winter in London. So me and my now wife uh, packed our bags and went traveling in South America, started traveling around South America, got a phone call from Lolik Peng in Singapore, asking us if we wanted to open a barbecue restaurant in Singapore. We flew over, thought it was a good idea, and nine and a half years later, there, there we are. Still on the same journey. Still on the same journey. You didn't have any plans of moving to Southeast Asia? No, never. Before. It wouldn't have even crossed our mind. It was, you know, we'd go to South America over English winter. We'd do the travels that we wanted to do, explore what we wanted to explore, and then come back and do it all over again. And then that, that got railroaded pretty hard. Tell me briefly, for someone who doesn't know uh, Burnt Ends, what kind of restaurant is that? Uh, well, we used to be a little restaurant, and I used to sort of talk about us being a shitty little barbecue restaurant in Chinatown, which unfortunately is no longer true. We've just taken on a, uh, a relatively big premise in Dempsey Hill, and we're still the same restaurant. Uh, so we do, we've got the four-ton dual-cavity wood-burning ovens and the elevation grills, um, we only sit about 50 people. We've got a private room now. We've done a wood-fired bakery uh, where we built a wood-fired bread oven in the in the back of the kitchen. 
Um, and then we we should be opening a small bar attached to that in the near future as well. Okay. Okay. Uh, the wood fire cooking. How? I mean, how? Where did you catch the interest interest for that? Was it something new or? Was it familiar from before? It, it, look, it's got an interesting history because as a kid, every house that we grew up in, my dad would rip out the gas barbecue and put in a wood-fired barbecue. And so whenever we had a barbecue, it was wood-fired barbecue. So it was a process and it was like distinct smells and different kinds of wood. The cooking might not have necessarily been very good, but this is how this is how our barbecue life started in Australia. But, you know, we after all the traveling ending up at, a place called Asadoy Chibari, it's the place that just really blows your mind. And what I, the biggest thing that I took out of it was that uh, a, a barbecue, cooking on barbecue or cooking barbecue can be a real restaurant. And with barbecue, you mean grilling? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. wood-fired and grilling. And before that, I never thought it could be a real restaurant. I think it was always one of those sort of you know, you do it with your family, you do it with your friends, but it was never a serious restaurant. And so going to Asador Echibari, it sort of showed how you can become a lot more technical, a lot more produce driven and a lot more creative with all things barbecue to turn them into a restaurant. And going there, did you mean eating there because you actually worked there as well? Working there, yeah. Working there. So I started okay. there for a while and then I ended up working for a couple of months before moving on. So what did the, I mean, uh, for much of the gastronomic world, Asadora Chibari is not only a uh, one of the f- most loved restaurants, it's also probably the most famous uh, open, I mean, fire cooking restaurants. Tell me, I mean, somebody who hasn't been there, what's what's so special about Echibari? Look, I, th- I think, you know, a number of things hit you, like, and, and, and I'll talk from the kitchen perspective, because this is what I saw more than the dining room. But what hits you is, you know, you're in the middle of fucking nowhere, surrounded by these incredible mountains and farms, which Victor has one just up on the top of the hill. And you're just like, this place is incredible. And then you go into the building and you start seeing the produce come in. And then you start seeing how he handles the produce and how he looks after the produce and how he selects the produce. And you're like, why the fuck is a barbecue restaurant doing this? Like, is it really this important? And his passion for the best products really underpins everything he does. And then you move into the kitchen and, you know, bass cooking is highly seasonal, but highly steeped in tradition. And what he's been able to evolve over the years, and this is, I I know from being a diner as well with him, is that he's constantly evolved and improved and refined the dishes that he's been doing over every season. And so that ability to constantly find a way to tweak and improve something is incredible. And the grilling is basically only a method, or? it It's a technique, yeah. and it's it's a technique that you know, some things he'll do gently, some things he'll do hard, some things he'll do with a little bit of fire, some things he'll put in the oven, some things he'll cook in the cold cavity, not the hot cavity, some things he does directly on the coals, some things he'll do in a basket. So 
I think what comes across is very simple and you know when you talk about grilling you're like okay you put the food on the bar you flip it you take it off your car but you serve it but what he sort of showed and really sort of I, I assume enlightened not only me but a lot of other other chefs and diners is that there's so many small techniques within that simple bit of equipment that you can really capitalize on and make the most of to make each sort of grilled item different. Leaving that place, where where after that? Uh, St. John Bread and Wine. St. John Bread and Wine? Yeah. It's quite near, we're now in actually in London. Yeah. Uh, St. John Bread and Wine, why is that so important for pretty much every, uh, at least English speaking chef or British chef? Look, I. My, my, I think my take on Fergus and his food is a little bit different to what most people identify with him. A lot of people identify Fergus with nose to tail, right? The name of his book, you know, let's use everything. And people thought, or people think that that's his ethos, use everything. But I think when you work, work with him and you work in his restaurants, he actually just loves delicious food. And what he was able to do with bits of protein that no one else thought they could make delicious, he could make delicious. And not only could he make it delicious, he loved it. So he had full commitment to believing that this was a delicious product. And he was able to pass this on to not only his chefs, his front of house team, but also his guests. And I think, you know, when I look at what I take from him and what I took from him is that he just makes really fucking delicious food. Yeah, yeah. Like re really, and it doesn't matter whether it's, you know, vegetables or poultry or tripe or livers or brains, it's delicious. It's handled correctly. It's cooked like technically perfectly and it's just made absolutely delicious. Yeah. And also, I mean, often also with respect of a tradition. Yes, for sure. Stuff that's like being passed down, he just sort of tweaks it and refines it in his own special manner to, again, yeah, just make it absolutely delicious and easily understandable for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you also have uh, uh, a connection to Noma. What What is that? Yeah, so I, when I first, really left Australia. My first port of call was Noma, so I started there. I went there for, the plan was to go for a month. I quit after two weeks. I stayed for five months. So it's one of those places that has that incredible effect on you. And that, which year was that? Uh, 2010. Okay. 2010. And what, what did you carry on from, uh, with you from, from Noma? Look, I think one of the most incredible things that Renee has really been able to foster is this insane energy from his whole team and their ability to drive that through the perfection of all the food and the dishes all the way to the table and the guest. And by, you know, people think about when you pigeonhole yourself into an idea, it makes your life really hard. But I think what he's really shown is by pigeonholing yourself into Scandinavia, which is essentially what he did, 
he was able to open so many doors and so many new ideas by forcing people to think outside of the box inside the box which i think is really incredible no that's a good point yeah good way to describe it Singapore, tell me, I mean, as uh, a chef and a restaurateur in Singapore, how, how is it coming from Australia? Yeah, I mean, coming from Australia, you, you move to Singapore and it's like this melting pot and you have all different types of cuisines, all different levels of cuisine. You've got artisanal dishes that cost you $5 and you've got sushi masters that'll set you back $600. And to have all of this in one tiny area, essentially 25 minutes away from everything is insane, is insane. Uh, for Australians, I mean, the, the, there's, there's an Asian connection because you are fairly close uh, in, in the corner of the world from Asia. Um, did, was that something that was familiar for you or I mean, Asian food techniques, ingredients? Look, I think uh, Asian food is very familiar to us. We've got a big Asian population in, in, in all of Australia and it's a big part of especially the dining scene. Um, so it is very relatively familiar for us uh, growing up. But when you, when you land in Singapore, it's kind of like that easy gateway into the rest of Asia. You know, they speak English, they, they mix products from like Southeast Asia, Asia, but also the Western world. So it's a very soft landing into where you are. And as a chef, what it allows you to do is do whatever the fuck you want. And if it's good, they'll support you because they're used to this notion of like, oh, anything goes. We're open to all cultures, all different races, all different flavor profiles, all different techniques. We just want good food. And they're fantastic eaters. At Burnt Ends, uh, fire cooking, that's, that's uh, one of the key elements. Uh, at, at this point, having worked at great restaurants like Echabari and Noma, and coming a long way with your restaurant, what's uh, the uh, what's the the what still fascinates you about the fire cooking? Is it the technique, the ingredients? Uh, what's I mean, which which what's your aim in the fire cooking? I, look, I think with fire cooking, I think what you've always got is a complete lack of control, and I think it's it's it reminds me a lot of surfing, where. And you're a surfer. Used used to be a surfer. Now I don't get as much time, but I'd like to still think I am. Uh, is that every wave is different? Every fire you cook is different, and you know you can try things and you might not get it one time, but you try it again a slightly different way and you can land it perfectly. And I think with fire cooking, you've always got that challenge. You've always got that challenge of what is perfect. Is it perfect for that wave or that fire or that service or is it perfect, perfect? And it will never be perfect because it's always evolving. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lot with food as well. It's like, you, you know, you have seasons. The start of the season will be different to the middle and the end of the season. And then the season goes and you move on to a different product. And so I think with fire cooking, 
you know, not only have we got those challenges, which I think are amazing, but it's, it's all the things that we haven't already thought about that could possibly be possible is what we want to explore. Hmm. What about uh, sourcing ingredients? What's, is there something particular you have to take in mind as uh, we are talking fire cooking or how do you, what's your, your view on that? Uh, look, I think there's so many different techniques within fire cooking that you can sort of utilize and we might only be a quarter of the way through or halfway through or whatever we are the way through. And so whatever the product is, it's I guess our challenge to figure out the best way to use it. Yeah. So, you, you know, there's no reason why it can't work, but to figure out how to make it work is what's going to be really important. Mm -hmm. And that's the challenge which sort of keeps us going all the time. Yeah. Uh, your restaurant has been uh, very successful internationally as well. Uh, but if you look at like generally and at other restaurants, uh, what I know is it's not an easy question, but which sort of key <laughs> elements talking about a hawker stall, uh, top restaurant, any bistro, any restaurant basically, which what is the the, the essence of, of a great restaurant? What's uh, what's if you would have to pick uh, three key things? Which which would they be? What what makes it makes it, makes it great? Look, I, I think a couple of things really stand out. One one is passion. You've got to really love what you're doing and love tasting and eating and serving. So that's one big part of it, which I think is critical. Whether you're a hawker or a fine diner or a bistro, the second part, which I think is really important, is the artisanal aspect, which is the idea of perfecting your craft over time. And having that idea that it's not day one that's important, it's day 100. Mm -hmm. And doing it on the 100th day, if you look at what you did on the first day to the 100th day, it's always going to be different and better. Mm -hmm. And so keeping in mind that you extrapolate that over years and coming back to the Echabari point, it's like he's been cooking the same season, the same produce for 25 years. And people will be like, oh, isn't that boring? It's like, no, no, no. He's just getting better at it. Yeah. And it's, it's that idea that I think is is really important. And then the, the, the last part, I guess, is relationships. And it's the relationships you can foster with your, your guests, your suppliers, and your teams that sort of really allow you to grow and become a great restaurant, whether you're a hawker or a top end. Singapore, as you mentioned, is a extremely uh, rich city of uh, gastronomy, of food, of different cuisines. Uh, if we look at the restaurants and the offerings there, uh, where you like to go eating, uh, any uh, favorites there? Uh, you must have a few, but if we start from the, 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 the cheaper end, where, uh, what, what, I mean, if you go out eating, where, where would you I, I'm going to pull out a list because <laughs> we do have a lot and I'm going to try and That's good. Uh, be relatively thorough with it because it is important. So I think if we're starting at sort of the lower, slightly lower end and we're just talking price-wise, not quality. Yeah. You've got places like Sinming, Roti Prada, which I love. They have these amazing coin Pradas with curry. You've got Eng's Noodle House, which is wonton noodles and, and dumplings, which is insane. 
you got Sammy's Fishhead Curry. So it's just like, again, come out in a banana leaf and uh, absolutely insane. So Fishhead Curry for someone who hasn't had it, why, why is it such a special uh, Singapore thing? I, I think because it's uh, it sort of really exemplifies that they eat the parts of the animal that are just delicious. And the head has so many different components, like the back of the head, like the neck, the cheek, where the jawline comes in, the eyeballs if you're into it. And you put that with a huge, like, flavor bomb curry. And it's just like one of those incredible things that you get to do in life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, um, chili crab, anywhere? Yeah, look, okay, so controversial. This is like always a controversy, right? It's like, so, my my favorite place to go is a place called Sin uh, uh, Sinhoi Sai in Tiongbaru, and it's like outdoors. You pick your crabs, you pick, pick your seafood, you sit outside late at night, you get some tiger beer, and you're away. The challenge is, and you know the 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 conversations that we have always is is chili crab pepper or black pepper crab. Ah, good point. Right, most people you talk to will actually say black pepper is better. It's a better flavor profile, it's a better sauce. I 100% agree, but- It's not chili crab. No, no, there's a big one. So there's but, the chili crab sauce is very wet and they typically serve with these deep fried, pillowy soft mantel buns from yep. Northern China. Yes. When you put those buns in that sauce, it's like game over. It's, it's a different experience. It's like, what's better, cashews or pistachios? Cashews are great, but when you pop the pistachios and then you eat the pistachios, it's not just a nut. And it's that whole act of like dipping and yep. eating that for me is maybe not better or worse, but different ball game. I'll have to ask Which you. is very special. I'll have to ask you, do you use plastic gloves or not? No. <laughs> No, you get you get messy. You hold your beer messy. You hold your your, your chopsticks messy. You eat messy, and yeah. then you clean up. Yeah, it's not a very romantic with the gloves. No, don't don't go on a date night. Yeah, yeah. unless you're trying to weed out the bad ones. So that's uh, a few classics, uh, cheap ones. Yeah. What else? So then, uh, if you sort of go the mid range, I think uh, you sort of end up at places like Imperial Treasure, Super Peking Duck which is one of the best ducks in Singapore for sure. Um, and it's definitely a must do when we when we have guests in town. Um, and then you've got other places like Kotowa, which are fantastic. You've got uh, wine bars like Wine Revolt, Macuzine, which are absolutely fantastic, but quite casual. Um, and now we're already in uh, European, like French, or where would you place them? Uh, so you'd, you'd probably, oh. yeah, I'd, I'd say you'd probably sort of sit them in that sort of French, but then, you know, why, what, where's, where are wine bars from? Yeah. You know, there's yeah. wine bars in Australia, there's wine bars yeah. all through America, Europe, France, London, they're all wine bars, but yeah. where are they from? Yeah. And where's the wine from? Yeah. yeah, but whereas, so Wine Revolt's one of those classic ones where you go, you have a great time, but it's run by Singaporeans. And good food as well? Yeah, good food, yeah. good food. So one of those nice, nice little pop-ups that you can get to. Yeah. Um, and then 
I mean, when you start getting to the, the high-end ones, I think Singapore has a plethora and it's just like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go pretty quickly through them because otherwise we might end up a little bit too long and I'll probably add some as we go. But you've got places like Cloud Street, Odette, Lesamee, uh, Soma, which is a new one. You've got Meta doing sort of fine dining Korean. You've got Wakugin, like my old boss, who's just absolutely crushing it. The Tetsuya? Yep. Tetsuya. Yep. Uh, you've got Cure, which is modern Irish. Uh, you've got Zen, obviously, who's from France and that's opened up and just kicking goal after goal. And then you've got like Ashino, Hashida, Masa, um, Oshino, uh, all the sushi restaurants that are just nuts. Yeah. Would this, I mean, uh, these restaurants on this, this level, would they be, who are they catering for? Is that for a, like a mixed crowd or for an expat crowd or for locals or? You, you know, the thing about Singapore is you get everything and it attracts people that love food. And so whether they're Singaporean or they're expats or they're tourists or they're business people, it everywhere is open. Everywhere is open and everywhere is accessible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good, good. Uh, anything else? Was that your list or anything else? I think that's a pretty good list yeah. to go. It's, I've got a slightly more extended list if you're there for a little bit longer. No, that's good. But we've definitely covered a lot of bases that's to good. keep people busy for a few meals. Yeah. So you come from Perth in Australia. Yeah. Uh, when you go back home, you go back home often? I haven't been home in three, two and a half years now. Okay. But should be planning a trip possibly in October. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you travel to Australia or to other places like Europe or London, so any other favorites out in the world except Echabari? Now you're going to put me on the spot. Uh, if you're if you're staying in the Bass re- region, obviously there's a lot of uh, Pinchos bars which are fantastic, but also El Cano. If you like turbot, it's yep. like he's the master of turbot. There's no, yeah. yeah, he's the master of turbot. Um, London just feels like a super exciting city. We've had a few amazing meals here. Where? Uh, well, we we did Lyles Cure, um, not Cure Core, and then we did Clove Club today. But if we had another week, I could give you another ten restaurants that I reckon would be on that go-to list. And how was Clove Club and Core? fantastic like they're both they're they're different in their own ways but they're fantastic you know Isaac goes down his own little path and just has these amazing dishes and stuff that reminds him any favourites as you have them in fresh memory from the Clove Club uh, Clove Club his sardine dish so we've been coming for years with him yeah but I think this is the best version and it was just really really for some reason, it's just really fucking delicious today. Like That's more actually, so than usual. And it's actually a raw sardine. Raw sardine. Yeah. It's it's like the the Scottish version of sushi. Yeah. <laughs> or, or a sashimi sashimi dish. Yeah. And, and so. Uh, and at Claire Smith, any favourites there? Uh, I was very surprised by the how good the potato dish was, wrapped in kelp, cooked perfectly with the different rows, the butter sauce. I was like, 
how good can this be? And it was like pretty fucking good. Okay. So I think surprisingly that was fantastic. But her, everything was really, really technically in flavour cooked exceptionally well. All right, hey, thank you for this. Let's wrap this up. One last question. Uh, when you come back to Singapore, planning your next trip or so, if you could pick uh, one place to go for one meal with your wife, maybe, uh, where would that be? And once again, not Echabari. When I'm going out in the world? Out in the world, anywhere. Um, Styrek. Styrek? Yeah. Okay. I think that's... Uh, in Vienna? Yeah, I think that's... On, that's high up on the hit list. Why is that? What, what's, uh, what are you looking for there? They're incredible people. Yeah. And over the years, getting to know them and speaking with them and staying in touch with them, I just really fucking want to go. So Vienna next? Possibly. Okay. So Dave Pint, thank you so much for this. Good luck with everything. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the World of Mouth podcast with Dave Pint in Singapore. Find all of the recommendations mentioned in this episode and more on the World of Mouth app, available in your app store, or visit our website at worldofmouth.app. You'll also find these places in our podcast notes. I'm Kenneth Nars. Until next week, when we meet Chef Bo Clugston in Copenhagen. 